Before we begin, a friendly heads up. Unlike previous episodes of Relic, this episode will not feature any ambient music. However, listeners are encouraged to go online and listen to the recommended playlist found in the description. Due to the nature of this episode, please be advised that there will be mentions of, but not descriptions, of self-harm as well as suicide. If you or someone you know are experiencing suicidal thoughts, there is a place to get help. For American listeners, call 1-800-273-8255. For Australian listeners, call 13 11 14. Remember, you matter. New York City, 1985. Hollywood had not been kind to Jonathan Demme. After a series of pictures that hadn't performed well at the box office, Dem finally hit a modest success with a documentary on the groundbreaking music group Talking Heads, called Stop Making Sense, released in 1984. Dem would go on to direct other films, and he had higher expectations for a romantic crime comedy called Something Twisted. While working in New York City, and no doubt weighing his hopes and dreams on his next big picture, Jonathan hailed a taxicab and got inside. What came next was a quintessential New York moment. A twist of fate, a meeting between an undiscovered talent and a director who was on the precipice of fame. The driver was a haunting and magnetic woman named Diane Lucky, but she went by the stage name Q Lazarus. Now, I couldn't find any explanation as to why she chose this stage name for herself, but it's worth pointing out that Lazarus was the name of the man that Jesus miraculously resurrected from the dead in the Bible. As was her habit, and also so quintessentially New York, Diane snuck the director a mixtape, and the rest was history. Dem loved what he heard and decided to follow up with Q, offering to put her music on his next feature, as well as give her a cameo. Q's work appeared on Something Twisted, and then Dems Married to the Mob, which garnered critical and audience acclaim, finally giving the director Hollywood recognition. Dem was fond of Q, and while it's hard to decide whether or not she was considered his muse, the director was very eager to include her work on his films. Hollywood executives, however, were less enthusiastic. Q was far from traditional, and to many producers, unmarketable. Hugh was an African-American woman who proudly wore dreadlocks and sang with an androgynous, husky voice. Dem was an activist in his own right, outspoken against the apartheid in South Africa and supportive of the Black Civil Rights Movement, as well as AIDS awareness. He tried to push her as a talent and get her signed on to a major record. Q raised her voice as well, saying, I market myself. It looked, for a brief moment anyway, that Q Lazarus might finally enter the public consciousness, though maybe her so-called breakout moment is one of dubious distinction. In 1991, Dem released what is widely regarded as his best work, the deeply problematic and engrossing thriller The Silence of the Lambs. In one infamous scene, serial killer Buffalo Bill dances to Q Lazarus's song Goodbye Horses, If you've seen the movie, you know the scene I'm talking about. The haunting melody, combined with Bill's performance, left an impression on audiences. There's no documented consensus from Kion how she felt about her music being delivered in such a twisted vehicle, but that's the thing. There is very little documentation on Q Lazarus as a whole. 
Sadly, this moment appeared to be Q's 15 minutes of fame. After the release, she went on to perform live music with a band, Q Lazarus and The Resurrection. Q mostly stayed close to New York, playing venues on St. Mark's Place, my favorite street, and Pyramid Club, my favorite bar. And after that, well, she just vanished. And I don't mean she just fell out from the music scene. I mean, nobody knew what had happened to her, not even her own band members. There were unsubstantiated rumors that Q had become homeless and was now living on the streets. One band member said that she had gone overseas for a while and then fell off the face of the earth, that there were unclaimed royalties waiting for her that hadn't been touched in years. Q Lazarus is not the only talented soul with a past who walked out of their lives and never returned. Many pioneers of their respective genres have been overlooked, and some of them, both figuratively and literally, forgotten. In this episode, the lives of three treasured musicians, in many ways ahead of their time, who vanished into the unknown. As Q Lazarus herself once sung, all things pass into the night. On Sunday, August the 3rd, 1924, Elizabeth Eaton Converse was born in a town not far from Concord, New Hampshire. Her mother was quiet, but musically inclined, and her father was a Baptist minister. The middle sister, with a brother on either side of her, Elizabeth was a naturally gifted child whose talents were encouraged by her conservative but artistic parentage. Her family would often sit around reciting Shakespeare, and Elizabeth would perform plays in the living room with her brothers. It was no surprise when she began to excel at both poetry and art, as well as a brief stint at playing the violin. As a New England woman from a mild-mannered but prosperous family, Elizabeth Converse stuck to the script too well, having been accepted into Mount Holyoke. However, sticking to the script may have been part of the problem. Her mother had attended the same school, and most of Elizabeth's life was, if anything, sheltered. So she did the same exact thing I did at that age, moved from quiet western Massachusetts to New York City. The move shocked her family, who believed she was trying to run away from them. They may have been right. Elizabeth ended up in Greenwich Village, obviously the coolest place on the planet back then, and she took up guitar. A natural talent, it didn't take her long to learn the instrument and begin writing her own music. Elizabeth started calling herself Connie, as she was affectionately known among her friends, and she was able to support herself with publishing jobs. But her new aim was to break into the music scene and share her songs with the world. Now, it may seem strange in 2019, but before the 1960s, the concept of a singer-songwriter, or someone who writes and performs their own music with minimal accompaniment, usually a guitar, was not at all common in the 40s and 50s. What we might recognize today as folk was being pioneered by musicians such as Woody Guthrie, and this genre is more often than not overlooked by a culture that saw music as something that needed to be inherently joyous and shallow, not introspective, challenging, or sad. In contrast, Converse's music was more in line with someone like Bob Dylan, who, by the way, was still in grade school when Connie first picked up a guitar. So this is to say, most people simply didn't get Connie Converse. 
During her formative years in New York City, Converse met a World War II veteran named Jean Deitch, who had an affinity for recording audio. Deitch described Connie as someone who reminded him of a nun. Though she was pretty, she dressed conservatively, was quiet, and wore large glasses. Deitch ended up recording Converse's best surviving material right there in his Greenwich Village apartment's kitchen. But Connie's music did not match the woman sitting at the table. Her voice was distant and soft. She sung about carnal desire and roguish women, a far cry from her Baptist upbringing. Her music was full of emotions, of deep longing and profound sadness, a beautiful melancholia. Connie was the antithesis of a bubbly female songstress at the time. She was, in a sense, radical. When a producer friend landed Connie a gig on the Walter Cronkite show, Connie Converse thought her fortunes had changed for the better. But no such luck. It always looked like Connie might take off, success always just around the corner. But it never came. She moved away from Greenwich Village in 1961, the same year Bob Dylan came into town and found near-overnight success. Connie began drinking and smoking in excess, and her parents refused to recognize her talents. They didn't even tune into her one televised performance. But Connie Converse was Bob Dylan before there was Bob Dylan. Sadly, the world just didn't see it. And in Connie's time, they never would. Connie moved to Ann Arbor to be closer to her brother, Phil, who worked as a professor of political science at the University of Michigan. As Connie was a natural writer, he helped her get a job as a secretary at the Journal of Conflict Resolution. And by all accounts, she did well there, quickly moving up from secretary to editor. But she never composed another song. She stopped correspondence with her friends from New York, and her collegiate friends soon realized the extent of her increasingly isolated state. They pooled their money to send Connie on a trip to London, which she enjoyed, but coming back to the same old life did nothing to vanquish her depression. In an attempt to help her daughter, Connie's mother invited her on a trip to Alaska with a family friend. It was the last thing Connie wanted. Though details are scarce, the trip was allegedly a disaster. Connie was unable to touch cigarettes or alcohol, and reportedly she got into several arguments with her mother. She returned worse for wear, and then was hit by two more rounds of bad news. First, the Journal of Conflict Resolution had been bought out and would relocate to Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Furthermore, Connie was told by her doctors that, due to health complications, she would need to have a hysterectomy. While Connie had no known male partners, friends say she adored children and would have considered having some of her own, if possible. In 1974, shortly after Richard Nixon's resignation, Connie found her 50th birthday fast approaching. She wrote a series of letters to her family and friends that, on the surface, appeared hopeful. She said she wanted to start over, go somewhere else, and become someone new. Connie's surviving family expected her to join them on an upcoming vacation, but she reportedly packed up her things in her Volkswagen Beetle and drove off before arrangements could be made. Not long after, some more letters arrived. In them, Connie told her family, Let me go. Let me be if I can. Let me not be if I can't. Human society fascinates me and awes me and fills me with grief and joy. I just can't find my place to plug into it. 
That was the last time anybody heard from Connie Converse. Inside Connie's letter to her beloved brother, Phil, was a check for an unspecified amount of money and instructions to keep paying her insurance until a certain date. None of Connie's friends or former work companions could account for where she'd driven off to, nor had Connie told them the specifics of her destination or plans. Connie's family considered enlisting the help of a private investigator, but were told that even if she were found, they had no legal right to just force her back home. Compounding the tragedy and mystery of Connie Converse, many of those who knew and loved her lived well past her disappearance. A few of her contacts are still alive to this day, some of them in their 90s. None have been provided any answers. Phil Converse, Connie's brother, recounts that a friend told him seeing a listing for an Elizabeth Converse in Kansas or Oklahoma not long after she drove off into the night. But Phil couldn't bring himself to try and track her down at the time, assuming she just vanished for a good reason. He theorized that she may have taken her life and driven off a bridge or into a body of water somewhere in the Dakotas, which would explain why her Volkswagen was never found. In later years, there has been considerable speculation as to whether or not Connie was bisexual or a lesbian, citing the lack of male romantic interests, the sexual imagery found in her songs, and her secretive personal life. The mystery of Connie Converse might have ended with her driving off into the unknown, but there is a bittersweet conclusion to her story. In January of 2004, an 80-year-old Gene Deitch traveled from his residence in Prague, Czechoslovakia, to New York City to participate on a WNYC show on music history. Deitch played what was likely the first time Converse's music had ever been put on air. The segment inspired several listeners to track down more of Connie Converse's work from Deitch's private collection, as well as some recordings from her brother Phil's filing cabinet in Ann Arbor. In 2009, these tracks were compiled onto a full-length album entitled How Sad, How Lovely. The release gripped the music world and calls into question the origin of the singer-songwriter genre. Connie's talents were recognized as being well ahead of her time, and her work struck a profound chord for its haunting ballads of loneliness and longing. Since then, popular musicians such as Karen O oh have done covers of Converse's songs, and she continues to inspire artists around the world. But Connie never lived to see the success she tried to achieve during her early life in New York City, and it's likely she passed away well before 2004. Richie James Edwards was born on the 22nd of December 1967 in Blackwood, Wales. He came of age during Britain's punk rock movement, and he would go on to graduate with a degree in political science in 1989. Edwards was known among his peers as deeply intellectual, intense, but affectionate. He was forthcoming about his struggles with depression and mental illness. He was a talented poet and a lover of music, and he was happy to haul equipment for a local band called the Manic Street Preachers. As the band's stardom took off in the UK, Richie's talents as a lyricist, and a damn good one at that, were recognized, and he was brought on board as a full-time band member. It was soon very apparent, however, that Richie had no musical talent whatsoever, and on stage, his bandmates frequently left his guitar unplugged. 
However, Ritchie's love of philosophy and politics, especially leftist politics, made him a very good poet in his own right. He supplied the lyrical content, and his bandmates were happy to provide the melodies. The pinnacle of Ritchie's craft was 1994's album The Holy Bible, on which Ritchie penned over 80% of its lyrics. The band, as well as Ritchie, were celebrated. However, some journalists questioned their authenticity. Now, it's a bit of a shame to have to sanitize the story behind an artist like Richie Edwards, but unfortunately, Relic has certain rules to abide by, thanks iTunes. So let's just say Edwards was known to pull some rather outlandish and flat-out disturbing stunts, which you are more than welcome to reference online. To put it mildly, Richie often self-harmed in very public ways. Edwards was a deeply complicated and troubled individual, and he was open about it. Richie's fellow bandmates became quite concerned as he spiraled into depression and alcohol dependency, not long after the release of The Holy Bible. Reportedly, the Manics were also known among the punk scene to be extremely courteous during their interactions with groupies, especially when it came to respecting personal boundaries. However, an article in a Manic Street Preacher's fanzine reported that, while touring in Japan, a fan claimed that she had an abusive experience while staying with Richie in a hotel after being brought back for the night. Not long after this Japan tour, Richie's mental state increasingly deteriorated. At his bandmate's urging, Edwards checked into a mental facility for treatment, but didn't last long before he checked out. While Richie was known to struggle with eating disorders and depression, several events in the early 90s may have contributed to his personal problems. The band's manager, Philip Hall, died of cancer at a young age. And on April 1994, one of the most tragic events in music history occurred when Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain took his own life. And this understandably had a profound effect on Richie. He had also lost a university friend who completed suicide not long after. In July of 1994, Richie suddenly dropped out of communication and remained unaccounted for, for over a period of 48 hours. When he finally resurfaced, Richie was in a pretty bad shape, having gone on a weekend bender that involved episodes of self-harm. Richie was then committed to a hospital and mental health clinic for the following two weeks, while his band members, forced to honor their contracts, had to play gigs without him. Though Richie was released and went on to do more shows, there were other episodes I will choose to omit because, quite frankly, to report on them just feels gratuitous. But this is all to say that, aside from his band members' support, Richie was not provided the long-term mental resources he should have been given at this time. At the end of December 1994, the Manic Street Preachers played Upset in London, which culminated in them trashing their instruments on stage in a frenzied display of raw emotional destruction. It might have been catharsis. Indeed, the last year had been rough on all of them. But it did seem that, for a fleeting moment, Richie had successfully exercised his demons— at the start of January of 1995, the Manic Street Preachers intended to go on a promotional tour in the United States. Richie began to draw the limit of 200 pounds from his ATM every day, supposedly in anticipation of travel costs. On the 13th or 14th of January, Richie's long-lived dog, Snoopy, passed away after 17 years. He buried him with the help of his sister, Rachel. Not long after, Richie spoke to his mother and expressed his displeasures in going overseas, that he was not looking forward to the America tour at all. This was the last time Richie Edwards would interact with his family. 
On the 31st of January, 1994, Ritchie and his bandmate James Bradfield checked into the London Embassy Hotel near the airport before their flight. However, when James went to rendezvous with Ritchie next morning, he discovered that his friend and musician was nowhere to be found. Ritchie had left behind a suitcase, a portion of his medication, and a decorated gift-wrapped box addressed to an individual named Joe, with a message that said, I love you. Inside the box were various books and videos, including a script of the play, Equus. Frustrated and confused, James continued on to America without him, certain Ritchie would show up while he was away. Allegedly, the night before Ritchie vanished, he had met up with a female friend and gave her a copy of the book Cocaine Romance, the plot of which involves the protagonist going to an insane asylum and then vanishing mysteriously. By the 2nd of February, Ritchie's bandmates and immediate family grew concerned that Ritchie had dropped off the map and was potentially in serious danger. The band's manager filed a missing persons report, and Ritchie's family placed an ad in the local paper that read, Richard, please make contact. Love mom, dad, and Rachel. What followed after these events were eyewitness reports, false leads, and conjecture. Various fans and witnesses came forward that February, claiming to have had run-ins with Richie around Wales. A fan said he saw him at the Newport Passport offices. Another fan and local named David Cross, unaware that Richie was even missing, claims to have spotted Richie at a bus depot. This individual even spoke to Richie at length about a mutual friend of theirs. Both of these reports may have suggested that Ritchie was in the midst of trying to flee Wales, and possibly the United Kingdom entirely. In recent years, information has surfaced that Edwards may have met a woman at the embassy hotel named Vivian the night before he checked out. Allegedly, he gave her his passport and told her, I won't be needing this anymore. In mid-February, a taxi driver named Anthony Hatherhall, upon hearing of Richie's disappearance, came forward to report an encounter he had with an individual who matched Edwards' appearance. On February 7th, coinciding with the time Richie was reported missing, Hatherhall picked up an unusual passenger from the King's Hotel in Newport, Wales. The passenger asked to be driven through the valley, into Blackwood, and spoke in a hybrid Welsh-English accent that matched Richie's. The young gentleman asked if he could lay down on the back seat, and upon arriving at the Pontypool rail station, reportedly told the driver, this is not the place. The passenger asked to be let out at the service station near the Severn Bridge, which connects Wales to England and has a reputation as a suicide spot. About two weeks later, an abandoned Vauxhall Cavalier was reported as abandoned to the local police. The vehicle was identified as Richie's car. Investigators discovered that the car showed signs of having been lived in for an extended period. There were food wrappers and a toll booth ticket. The engine was also dead. Found on the car seats were photos of Richie's family. It was initially assumed by almost everyone that Richie James Edwards, celebrated lyricist of the Manic Street Preachers, threw himself over the side of the Severn Bridge. This would have given him the dubious distinction of joining the 27 Club, a list of famous musicians who died at that age, including Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, and Amy Winehouse. However, the police searched and troweled the waters of the River Severn, and no body was found, which gives us more questions than answers. There remains considerable debate over whether or not Richie did in fact intend to take his life. 
he was once quoted by a journalist as disavowing suicide and said that the thought never even entered his mind, making a distinction between self-harm and suicidal ideations. For many years, both Richie's family and bandmates believed he was still alive, somewhere out there, and that it had been his intent to disappear. The Manic Street Preachers continued to deposit 25% of their royalties into an account under Richie's name. However, in 2008, his family declared him legally dead. To this day, fans all over the world occasionally claim sightings of Richie Edwards. As recently as 2019, Richie's sister Rachel still believes there is hope that Richie might be alive, having assumed a new identity. There was gossip, shortly before Richie's disappearance, that Richie Edwards had met a woman from Israel during his stay in Whitchurch Hospital. The two had apparently formed some sort of relationship, and Rachel claims that her brother mentioned wanting to visit Israel after he was released. Author Leon Noakes, a Richie Edwards biographer, claims that while receiving a haircut in the Welsh capital of Cardiff, the hairdresser casually mentioned that it's a public secret that Richie has been living on a farming commune in Israel since his disappearance. In 2017, a New York musician named Kelsey Zimmerman and her band covered Q Lazarus's Goodbye Horses. This inspired Kelsey to tweet out, Time to do my monthly Google of whether anyone has heard from Q Lazarus yet or not. Zimmerman, in addition to being a musician herself, was also an avowed follower of Reddit, most likely the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit. Kelsey thought nothing would come of sending out the harmless tweet, as she was just one of many fans and artists who had been inspired by Q and the enduring enigma of what had happened to her. Then, Kelsey received something she wasn't expecting, a reply to the tweet by none other than a woman claiming to be Q Lazarus. Zimmerman was playfully skeptical, as was Thomas Gordon over at Dazed and Confused online magazine, which had joined in Zimmerman's search for the elusive Q that year. The following was the message Zimmerman received. Hi, sorry to bother you. I just wanted people to know I am still alive. I have no interest in singing anymore. I am a bus driver in Staten Island. I have been for years. I see hundreds of passengers every day, so I'm hardly hiding or dead. I have given Thomas Gordon at Dazed my phone number and address just to confirm I am real. <laughs> sorry if this is a boring end to the story. I'm going to come off Twitter soon as I find it odd. Please take note of this message in case anyone else is interested. Thank you. The message included a selfie, one that definitely resembled the woman on Q's self-titled album from the early 90s. At first, Kelsey's interaction was mostly relegated to the confines of the music journalism sphere online, until an active Twitterer and follower of all things weird happened to take note of the story and post the news on the Reddit's Unsolved Mysteries thread. That person had the Reddit handle empty underscore C9. And that person, well, that person is me. While the story blew up, Kelsey Zimmerman began to do her own investigation and found that Diane Lucky had sued the Staten Island bus company in 2015 for having no female drivers on staff. As Q had been a taxi driver in the 90s, it all made sense. Zimmerman, who went on to write for Dazed under the name Kelsey Chapstick, embarked on a deep dive just this past year in search of confirmation of Q's identity. 
After the phone number she'd been provided led to a dead end, a trail of clues landed Kelsey at the door of a Staten Island residence with a very distinct-looking man who claimed to know nothing about a Q Lazarus or a Diane Lucky. That man later turned up in a photo on social media belonging to a known family member of Diane's, with the singer herself pictured standing right next to him. This confirmed that the singer known as Q Lazarus was indeed very well and alive, but it also meant that she had chosen to leave her former identity behind and embrace a new life. And it makes sense. Fame brings attention, and some of that I'm sure is not always wanted. There are many musicians who regret having ever found stardom, that it caused them more problems than anything. For musicians as troubled as Richie Edwards and Connie Converse, pulling a key Lazarus, disappearing from the spotlight and going on to lead a very different life, would have no doubt been appealing to them. And maybe, in the best case scenario, that's exactly what they did. Maybe Connie went on to become a librarian in Kansas City, quiet and contented with her life, and had simply died before her music was truly discovered. Maybe Richie Edwards is still in a kibbutz in Israel. These are, of course, happier endings than the alternative. My brush with this mystery surrounding Q Lazarus was, in all honesty, very uneventful. I just happened to see Kelsey's tweet and posted it on Reddit. More of good timing than good journalism, I assure you. However, with all the rumors and speculations surrounding Q Lazarus, there is one additional part of the story I do feel is worth noting. As the Reddit post blew up, I did receive a message in my inbox. An anonymous Redditor had awarded me with Reddit Platinum. I'm still not sure what that means. But it was a pleasant surprise, to say the least. And attached to this award was a message. It said, Patience. Resurrection is imminent. From Diane. Relic is written and narrated by me, Maxwell. Stick around after the jump for another story about a musician who vanished that I couldn't really fit into this episode. But if you liked what you heard today and want to make me Reddit famous again, you can rate and review Relic in iTunes. We also have a Patreon that has exclusive episodes, including the pilot episodes to my Paranormal Mystery podcast from 2015, collaborations with other podcasters, and Tales from the Reliquary, which looks at the weirder lost treasures that can't fit a full episode. Connect with me on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod and email me at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. And of course, you can find me on Reddit as empty underscore C9. Jim Sullivan was an athlete before he was a musician. Born on August 13, 1940 in California, Sullivan came from a working class background and fell in love with blues and folk music. He was also a quarterback and known for being, well, very, very tall. But Jim's passion was first and foremost rock and roll. He played alongside his sister-in-law, Kathy Doran, in a rock band called The Survivors, and he opened up his own bar. But the bar business didn't pan out, and besides, Jim had notions of becoming a big hit, so he moved to Los Angeles with his wife and son, Chris, in 1968. The smartest thing Jim could have done was to ingratiate himself in the L.A. music scene, and he did just that, between playing gigs at prestigious venues and working for the famous Capitol Records. He rubbed shoulders with the celebrities of the day, such as Lee Majors, and even had a bit part in the film Easy Rider. But success eluded Jim Sullivan. His lyrics were described as a bit experimental, and his records didn't sell all that well. 
his most critically well-received album, UFO, released in 1969. As was the case with both Connie Converse and Richie Edwards, frustration soon gave way to alcohol dependency. As a last-ditch effort to jumpstart his career, Jim Sullivan decided to move out to Nashville, Tennessee, where his former bandmate and sister-in-law, Kathy, was finding moderate success. He never made it. Eerily paralleling Connie Converse, Jim drove off in a packed Volkswagen Beetle, leaving on March 4, 1975, just a year after Connie had vanished herself. A highway patrolman issued a warning to Sullivan for erratic driving, which might have been a sign of things to come. Sullivan checked into the La Mesa Motel in Santa Rosa, New Mexico, and went out to buy a bottle of vodka. The next day, he was spotted almost 26 miles away from the hotel on the side of the road next to a remote ranch. Jim walked away from his car and into the wilderness. He left behind money, his guitar, clothes, and a box of his own recordings. A thorough police search turned up nothing, no body, and no signs of where Jim Sullivan may have wandered off. Jim Sullivan never resurfaced. He was reportedly into astrology, reincarnation, and the New Age esoterica permeating the 1970s. His wife, Barbara, believed that because of his attraction, and perhaps connections, to the paranormal, Jim Sullivan had rendezvoused with a UFO and was abducted by aliens. Sullivan's son, Chris, later reported, My mother was convinced he was up in the stars somewhere, waiting for her.